Welcome to the Guernsey Daily, I'm Rob Byrne. And I'm Ollie Guy. We're building up to Guernsey's election with candidate interviews every weekday and a taste of what's going on out on the election trail. It feels like the pace is ramping up, but is this island-wide vote going to be more petty tran than hill-climb racer? We're hearing of voters being overwhelmed by the choice, but is that really the case? Coming up on Tuesday's episode, you'll hear from one voter who's deeply engaged with this election. If you're going to lead others, and if you're going to even lead yourself, you need the sense of being able to be courageous, to be able to stand up and set out your course so that others can follow. More from Perrin Kerry later, we'll look into which candidates are stealing a march on social media, and back in the real world, which candidates are having their posters stolen. And I headed along to Summeray Park to speak to Ross Lebrun. He's one of the candidates who's advertising their whereabouts and hoping the voters will come to them. I am getting a lot of people walking past that are seeing me here. So, yeah, I am. I mean, I'm getting known just by sitting here and having a coffee at 10 o'clock in the morning. More from Ross in just a moment. And to kick things off, we'll take a look at how the candidates are faring on the campaign trail. So, Ollie, a lot's happened in the last few days. I think it's fair to say it's the beginning of the information Blitzkrieg, as I like to call it. So there's not only the candidate manifesto booklet that's arriving in people's homes. I've not got mine yet, though. We've also now got daily radio debates uh, featuring 10 candidates each morning on BBC Radio Guernsey. So as our man on the ground, what else has been going on in Guernsey, Rob? Well, uh, there's this campaign poster thief around uh, by the looks of things. Uh, We've seen two candidates, Yvonne Burford and Sasha Kazentseva Miller, Uh, both complaining that their election materials have gone missing. Um, Sasha uh, tweeted, it was very disappointing. Three of her posters had been stolen, uh, two of them close to Torteville Church and one on the Rue de Plaisance by Edible Guernsey. Yvonne Burford also tweeting that she wasn't alone in suffering from this uh, phantom poster stealer. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so she said, uh, yeah, put out a message saying, come on, guys, play fair. Make your voice heard at the ballot box. Uh, we are better than this, surely, surely. M- what my immediate thought wasn't someone's stealing them to try and you know discredit their campaign. I think they're sort of building up an arsenal of them at home for some sort of weird uh, candidate deputy related shrine, don't you? <laughs> it's some sort of just like weird satanic ritual going on or something with these. They're going to have like one of each candidate, but you know that's that was my initial thought. Maybe. Or, or I mean, were you thinking the whole well, discredit the campaign? I, I don't know. I mean, if you're going to discredit, normally you just deface. Uh, that's, that's what happened, I think, to Cole Mirabel's, um one of his posters in the last <laughs> campaign. It could be that. I mean, yeah, what happened to know. a good moustache? Um, yeah, well, or, or something else um, being drawn on someone's head. Um, but the, the, <laughs> I don't know. It, it could be that um, there, are, there are other candidates that have had uh, posters disappearing or being defaced. If, if if you have experienced that, let us know. Um, perhaps we can draw up a map of where they're disappearing and maybe we can zero in on who this uh, poster stealer is, perhaps. I don't know. Right. Uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, sort of interesting investigative stuff, uh, one candidate, Deputy Jonathan Latox, has been looking into who's been accessing his website and he uh, he's tweeted <laughs> that it's getting quite a lot of traction in South Korea, apparently. <laughs> what that's so weird um and, it, and what's even weirder about that is i sort of noticed that our podcasters listeners from outside of guernsey which you know for a guernsey election podcast feels a bit weird uh, we got quite a lot of people who are downloading the show from the us and then we also have some downloads from 
places like New Zealand and Canada. I mean, this is only a handful now, but we've even got some downloads from uh, the Netherlands, the United Arab Emirates and Egypt. (laughs) Well, I mean, so I'm not sure if they're listening all the way through. There could be some postal voters out there, especially with coronavirus, people stuck in other parts of the world. I'm guessing some of those places, especially the US, there are a lot of Guernseys in the US, so perhaps people have stumbled upon it accidentally, listened to an episode and realised it's about the wrong Guernsey. Um, but no, that's interesting. Oh, and another thing uh, Deputy Jonathan Latop did, which I thought was quite interesting, was he uh, he has his own sort of uh, QR code that people can scan and it'll take them uh, presumably to his website, I think. And that's the first bit of uh, sort of very modern technology that i've sort of seen deployed in the election kind of bringing people from, taking people from the physical world uh, at the, the hustings event or at the uh, meet the candidates event and taking them uh, to his website to find out more it's quite an interesting development oh actually what well, we're talking about technology another thing we spotted in terms of you know this this being the you know the internet election perhaps or the first one where the background is really online uh, was I've noticed if you punch in sort of Google Guernsey election, Guernsey 2020 election, Guernsey election 2020 or variations of, a couple of the candidates have paid for Google ads. So they're actually coming up on the first page of the searches along with, you know, the, adver- the, the websites that you'd expect to see there, like the official Guernsey election website and the coverage in uh, ITV, BBC, local media, that kind of thing. Guernsey Daily is not there. I don't know what's going on. There's obviously something wrong with Google. Maybe it's not um but those candidates yeah those candidates are sam haskins and andrew taylor so they've obviously coughed up a bit of dough to get um to get adverts get placed on the on the first page of a google search next up it's ross lebrun he's standing for the second time and wants to speak up for working class islanders Okay, so we've come to summary park outside the cafe with a candidate who's actually saying to voters come and talk to me and this is one of the places you're doing it how are you finding it's going ross oh it's not mega busy but there's a steady stream of people coming down sometimes i've got three or four people coming down to see me the only day i haven't had anyone come down was um the the red arrows the battle of britain day other than that i am getting a lot of people walking past that are are seeing me here because i have been here every day bar sunday with the beau event so yeah i am i mean i'm getting known just by sitting here and having a coffee at 10 o'clock in the morning and why did you decide to go for this strategy to engage with people because it's it's like a concrete thing people know exactly where i'm going to be every single day and they can pick and choose if they want to come and see me well they first start they know i'm available and they know exactly where i'll be at 10 o'clock so it just seemed a real a no-brainer really yeah and i guess it feeds into this thing of this being an island-wide election and people were having to really think about how they engage mm-hmm. compared to last time. You ran in 2016. I did. What are you doing differently this time? Making myself more accessible, I suppose. I was out and about last time and I think I'm right in saying that I'm the first candidate that had ever organised their own hostings. Um, I did that and I invited everyone down to Richmond Kiosk every day for half past 12 to come and chat. And it, it it's a good idea because people aren't necessarily that keen to go into a, a formal setting, say in a, in a dozen room for a surgery, or um, like phoning someone up and having the almost feeling obliged to, to sit and chat, whereas this, it's much more relaxed. Someone can come down, if they don't want to chat to me, they can just sit there, have a coffee and an earwig while I'm chatting to someone else. But it, it's just much more relaxed. Pe- people engage more with it. 
Mm. And uh, Dr. Pitcher, you've heard on the podcast, who's yeah. kind of becoming a bit of a regular, said yeah. that one of the things he looks for in a candidate is, could I sit down and have a pint with that person? <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. I, sometimes I, I can chat a bit too much, but you, you won't get sort of fluff and waffle from me. But yeah, I'm definitely someone that you could have a beer with, that's for sure. <laughs> and how, um, how are you finding the campaign so far? We're two and a bit weeks before the election. How's it going? Um... I don't know if it's what I expected because it's island-wide. I think I thought personally that more people would sign up to on the electoral roll, but at the moment it's about the same as it was in 2016. And I've I've got personal friends that are saying to me they'll vote for me, but they don't know if they're voters. And I'm having to tell them, well, if you don't know you're a voter, it's, it's probably quite likely you're not a voter. So there there is still quite a lot of people that haven't actually managed to sign the electoral roll. Um, one of the issues I've, I've found as well is um, a Portuguese lady, a local Portuguese lady that supports me. She came and chat and she asked how she could sign up. And I had to inform her that it, it's a bit late. But um, I don't know whether or not the, uh, the election team had actually gone out to those communities of uh, where, where English isn't their first language and actually gone out to them and explained to them that they're able to vote and they're, they're welcome to vote. Because I think some of them feel a bit left out. There has been some sort of in, information put out there in, in their language, but it hasn't really been pushed to them. It, it's not their concern as far as they're aware. Hmm. That's an interesting point. It's not one we've heard from, from any of the candidates yet so far. I think there'll definitely be a lot for the election team to, to learn from this election, right? Because it's a first time, um, first time thing for a lot of them. Well, let's get on to you. Why have you decided to um, to stand for election again? Um, I, I just feel that for someone like myself, uh, I know we're not supposed to talk about classes and some people will say class doesn't, doesn't exist, but for me, I'm, I'm from a working class background and I I, I grew up in um, states housing down the Jeanne till I was about 13 and then I was secondary educated in Lamar. I didn't get the best education that was partly my fault I, I didn't engage enough as I should have but I've gone on to to do something with myself I, I, I own my own home I've got a little boy now he's three and I've run my own businesses since 2008 and I just don't feel that there's enough people in the states that actually comprehend the issues that I'm facing and maybe have never even experienced them an interesting thing uh, a couple of days ago actually um, Richard Diggard in the press did an article on poverty in the island and uh, food banks and things and it was interesting to see the surprise of some fellow candidates and and, and other people that sort of are politically aware they're surprised that that actually goes on in Guernsey you now I, I see this on a regular basis because I, I employ people that are on the lower skills level so a lot of them come from the unemployed and I, I mean I've employed about 350 local people over the last 10 years so I, I do see it sort of every week. And tell us about your business. What is it that you do? I've got a little business called Labour Force. We're basically a labour agency. We hire out manual workers to any industry on the island. And we've, we've actually... Um, we're, we're a first port of call for a lot of incoming businesses. So at least through us, they're actually contributing to the island, whereas uh, there's nothing set up, which is what I stood for in 2016 to introduce a, a business license so that we've got an idea of how many people are working here and 
and we can actually uh, get some sort of financial contribution to the island from it because at the moment there's nothing. But and what other insights have you got in terms of you know what you're standing for now from from your business experience doing that? Well, it's it's not just my business experience, but my life experience. Obviously, I've I've got family and friends that are struggling. I, I've struggled myself some years. My partner, um, she started out in the States house with her parents. Her parents bought a house. Then she had a, a child at 18. She, um, as soon as her child went to school, she put, put herself in uh, college for an accounting course. And in the evenings, in the night time, she, she stacked shelves and I, I looked after the little one. In the morning, she took her to school and went back to college. And we, we were lucky that we, we could support each other like that. But then she went on to work for Trident Trust as a um, offshore ship payroll administrator and she's very very good at her job and about seven years ago I said to her why don't you leave because she she wasn't enjoying the job anymore so she now works as an employee for for my business and uh, we've had some very very good years and we've had some poor years as well one year three of us um, myself Nikki my partner and her um, grown-up daughter she we all had to survive on less than a deputy's wage from from what I earn from my business because I do see some other people that have got businesses but they've got partners with very well paid jobs that can support them when they have lean time so we even though I run my own business and I've got my own home and it, it looks like I'm doing well some years it is hard for us as well as it is for everyone else and what would you plan to do with your business if you were elected my business would continue and I'd, I'd think it would be unfair after the effort I've put into it for me to be forced to stop it. But a lot of my work is just correspondence, it's emails and, and phone calls and I've got people that I've spoken to. There's a plan in place, if I do get elected they'll be taking the phone away from me so that's, that's a massive piece of stress away from me. I mean, I'm able to do the obviously do the kiosks as well, which unfortunately <laughs> you missed me at today. <laughs> oh yeah, so I should explain. I went to uh, Kobo earlier because Ross was advertising that he was stopping at kiosks, but that was a one-week thing. It was, yeah, but I didn't make that clear enough on on the Facebook page, and, and you've you've made me aware of that now. So I've got to sort of, I suppose, honour that this week now, which will hinder what I, my plan was for this week. I won't say what my plan was for this week because I don't want people stealing my ideas because I, I notice on quite a few candidates pages that sort of some of my ideas I've started a week or two ago are starting to trickle out into other campaigns. Yeah we're seeing uh, there are others doing similar things. Um, uh, on that though you kind of have you sort of written off the idea of doing the traditional door knocking then? No I haven't um, but I wanted to just make sure at first that I was out there and known Last time when I st- stood, it was um, I signed on half an hour before the the deadline, and because I did it so late, I had no material ready. So I went to the printers and designers, and it took a couple of weeks because there was a queue of people already waiting to have their stuff done. So really, I only had a couple of weeks to campaign last time, whereas this time I'm obviously well aware of that, and I started about a week maybe a little bit longer before the actual declaration period. I was chatting to people down here, organising chats. I think I was the first person to do that. So I've done my best to get my name and face. Everyone knows me as the guy with the big bald head, so... <laughs> oh, you're coming up against Jonathan Latoc. <laughs> oh, I suppose, I suppose, but he's not going out having coffees every day at Summer Park. But, yeah, I'm, I am going to be doing the door knocking, but... I learned in 2016 it's a very inefficient way to do things because I was doing about 80 houses a day and that that was partly because people the people that are home they want to chat and some people will chat for three quarters of an hour 
and a lot of people are either out or they're, they're either at work, shopping, they're, doing, they're basically just living their, their normal daily lives and me hassling them on their doorstep uh, when they might not want to talk to me just doesn't seem the best use of my time whereas I can do this and it's getting well known. I mean even if people aren't coming here they're seeing the effort I'm putting in online and I'm getting a lot of praise for it. Whether or not that will translate to votes is another matter. I know I'm a long shot to get in, but I'm doing my best to get there. And let's go back to you and, and what you're standing for. You've touched on some of the things. Um, what else would a vote for Ross LeBrun get people? It would get a wider comprehension in, of, in the states of the issues that small businesses face. Um, I've stated quite a bit recently about the, um, the problems I see with people in social housing that whether or not people want to accept it or even believe that it's real, there are kids that are growing up whose only ambition is to have a child so that they can get a free state's house. It might sound harsh, but it, it happens and I see it. And if you talk to people that see it, they'll tell you the same. But I think a big part of the problem with a lot of things here is, is how much the housing costs are. A lot of people understand that... See, to me, the, the states and developers think that a, a £400,000 house is a starter home. Now, that, that's not realistic. A starter home, for, for someone to realistically be able to achieve a home as a, a single person, it's, you're probably looking that realistic for them would be between 150 and 250,000, whereas a couple might be between two and 300,000. This is and that, because of the getting a deposit, basically. Yeah, it's getting a deposit, and it's actually being able to put the earnings in, especially if you've got children at home and, and things are difficult. Not everyone gets the best start in life, but... If they, if they can see that a goal that is reachable and achievable and realistic, it, it will give them the incentive to actually try for it. And that, that's what I think we need on this island, is, is homes that are actually realistically achievable. Mm. Uh, so there's one element. Um, I went to the Hustings the other night, uh, you were there. Um, obviously a whole range of topics were touched upon, including education. Yep. Um, do you think it's it's foolish on the part of candidates to nail their colours to the mast and say, I want two schools, three schools, three schools, plus a sixth form model? Where do you stand on that? Well, it's just clever campaigning, really, isn't it? It's they're, they're telling people what they want to hear. What they're doing is they're recognising who is the most vocal group online that they can see, and they're, they're just telling them. They're feeding them what they want to hear. So what's your position? My position is I've got a three-year-old little boy who's going to, go, going to be state-educated, and I want what's best for him. Now, there's a review underway at the moment, and if two or three school comes out as, as the preferred option, whatever it is, it, it needs to happen, and it needs to happen fast, and that needs to be a capital project that is injecting money back into the economy. But it, need, it needs to happen. There's, there's kids in the system now who may never get to see the benefit of the decision four years ago to remove the 11+. plus. They've been promised an inclusive system, but they're still stuck in a, a selective infrastructure. So... Just to be clear, then you want to see the result of that review and you'll go with the consensus if you were to be elected? I think so, yeah. I, th I think so. I, I just need... Something needs to happen. I'm not, Like I say, I'm not... A, an, I don't believe any one model is better than the other. I'm going by what I'm being told by people I trust that actually work within education. I, I, believe it or not, I've actually got a teaching qualification myself. But, uh, which might come in handy in the States because it's for teaching people over 18. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going with what I trust and I'm, I'm being told, OK, there's compromises need to be made. 
I criticised the two score when it first came out based on the traffic, but that's that's like a, a selfish um, thing because that's how it, how it will affect my life rather than how it will affect a, a pupil's education. That's what that should be the main thing, the main concern. It's 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 building an education model. It's not building what's most suitable for people to drive to work or, or wherever. So uh, on the first day of term, if you're elected and you've got a classroom full of uh, fellow deputies, uh, <laughs> what's lesson number one that you'd like to uh, impart on them? Uh, just to listen and basically ed- educate the public more, engage with the public more, do what I'm doing here, invite people down to talk with them. I mean. Don't wait till it's too late and people start kicking up a fuss when things are already in, in flow and then we have to start doing uh, drop-ins at Beausajour and things like that. All that sort of thing should be done much earlier in a much more informal way where people feel that they can actually be involved and get engaged because a lot of the things that the states offer, it feels too formal and it, it just puts people off. In fact, the um, I did criticise a little bit the uh, Meet the Candidates event at Beausajour yesterday because I, I just felt that it was a little bit too formal and I did get the, the feedback I mean I spoke to quite a few people there but they, you could see people were waiting they didn't want to come and sit and interrupt the person in front of them whereas if we were stood a simple thing instead of sitting and we were stood people would quite happily join the back of a, a crowd to listen to what you're saying to one person whereas they don't feel like they feel like they're imposing on someone else's conversation by by sitting alongside someone at a table. So more broadly then, you, you, can you think of any examples? You talked about the states not really listening. Where it's, is not, that? it's not so much not listening, it's just not taking the public with them. When they make a decision, the, the, yeah, they do their consultations and that, but it just doesn't feel um, like real. It's all done online, like a, a survey or something like that. They need to actually be more personable and, and talk face-to-face with people. And this is something, while, while I remember it, to the other voters that are listening get your candidates and ask them to come and meet you face to face one on one and if they're not willing to do that while they're trying to get your vote you've got to wonder what they're going to do when they're in if they're going to listen to you when they actually get voted in get them out and talk to them face to face you know though that you're getting a lot of you're getting pulled in all sorts of directions you're getting bombarded particularly by email on social media you've got different ways of interacting with voters so it's maybe not that simple that, that people can even get to every person. No, they can't, they can't. But like I did this, I just picked a time that was suitable for me, that I knew would be achievable for, for anyone, because I'm here 10 o'clock every single day, even Saturdays and Sundays. So this is the start of the third week I've been doing this. So I'll have been doing it a total of four weeks. And if someone can't get to me for 10 o'clock in the morning over four weeks then they either just don't want to talk to me or I don't know. But I'm doing other things as well, like you said, the kiosks at 12.30 at dinner time in case they can't make 10 o'clock. I'm trying to make myself as accessible as possible. Some people really need a bit of a push, though. It's it's just trying to incentivise that push rather than... Don't take this the wrong way. Yeah. But do you think you're... Do you ever worry about coming across maybe a bit negative and moaning a bit too much? (laughs) I know it's a Guernsey trait... Yeah, no, I do. I know I do, but it's it's. I I try to highlight problems that I want improved. That that that's my perspective. I, I'm not going to sit there and pretend everything's rosy, especially when I'm the one that's having to bear the brunt of certain decisions, and and I'm the one that sees the reality of things where other people get surprised that oh really we've got food banks oh there's 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 poverty we didn't realise that. These are the things I've been telling people for a long time, and sometimes they roll their eyes and oh, but. 
yeah, when when you see the things that you have to work within, then yeah, you you do sometimes moan a little bit. <laughs> it's natural, but so let's talk solutions then. What what other things you know do you think that you could champion or you could bring that would help uh, perhaps level up people who are str- you know uh, help people who are struggling in Guernsey? Well, yeah, there, there's there's other little things. Um, there's little things like the cost for GPs. If that could be brought down or subsidised for people who aren't on benefits, then it might incentivise more people to not be on benefits. Because I know there are certain people that will stay on benefits because they they just want the free GPs. It's something as simple as that, and they're better off. We we might be better off paying for for GPs so people get to work and actually contribute back to the economy. There's other things as well, like job centre work schemes, where uh, back to work schemes, um, Kickstarter, where a, a company will get a, someone that's on um, job seekers allowance for 13 weeks with the incentive, with the intention that they'll give them a job at the end of it. But in construction, that very rarely happens, and, and why would it when they've got almost a conveyor belt of free labour? So the, the period will come to an end, and then someone else will come along, and they can almost. I, I don't know if it works quite like that, but. I do know, I actually, um, I've asked the question and there, there isn't that many that go into a, a permanent job at the end of it, whereas that 13 weeks, I could have been hiring them out and they could have been contributing back to the economy. On the minimum wage, do you think that could be increased in Guernsey? Is that something you'd, you'd, you'd look to push for? It, it could, I th- it probably will be increased anyway. But I, mean, I mean, it always is, it goes incrementally, the, doesn't it? But I mean, could, could there be a living, you know, a Guernsey living wage? If there was a Guernsey living wage, the the problem I see with it is I actually pay staff, some of them, the London living wage, which is £10.75, and they still need financial assistance because of the the living costs here, because of the the rental costs. Now, there there becomes a point where, as as an employer, for someone of a certain level of skills, you can't justify paying more because you can't charge more for for someone that can't do certain certain things. But... um, you put minimum wage up, what will happen is when you go to a restaurant, everything your, your meal will go up. Every, everything will go up and the landlords will just put their rates up. So it's, you almost need like a cap on, on um, housing costs because that, that is the big problem for people. And it's not just housing, it's, it's rental for, pro, uh, for business pro- premises as well. It hurts everything. Mm. Um, final question, and this one came in from a listener. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit of an odd one and if it's too personal you don't have to answer it what happened to your eyebrow? Alopecia <laughs> oh really? yeah yeah. it's oh, an okay. actual uh, disease it's uh, an autoimmune disease oh wow <laughs> the other one's going as well and by the time I'm through this it'll probably be disappeared now I feel like a dick <laughs> that's alright I get it all the time I've, I've got to learn to live with it I, I did a, it's one of the things that actually almost put me off because I knew that people want pictures of my face and things like that and it's, it's a question my own friends ask me so it's something that I've, I've learnt to live with. What I don't like, though, is um, people saying things when I'm with my little boy, because I'm his dad. I don't like to see people saying things like that. I wouldn't do it to someone else. No, no. OK, well, Ross, thanks for your time. No worries. Um, good luck with your campaign. Thank you. Ross Lebrun there. He wanted to clarify a point he made earlier in the interview. He says that having come from states housing himself and with family and friends living there, he didn't mean everyone exploits the system, but a small minority do. He says he should have added the word some. He says we need more realistically affordable homes to help incentivize breaking that cycle where anyone can believe that buying a home is something that is possible for them. (laughs) 
Up next, let's hear from Perrin Carey, who's a fan of the show who got in touch. His professional background means he's got some interesting thoughts on this election. Perrin, thank you very much for getting in touch with us. Um, and quite uh, nice to know that there, there are fans out there. So um, I, I don't know, just um, <laughs> because I like, I'm a bit big headed. But um, what do you make of the show? Are you enjoying it? Thanks, Ollie. Yeah. Yeah, definitely enjoying it. Um, I I have listened to almost every episode that you've put out there. I don't like I don't like the almost every episode. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm feeling I'm sensing that you're not as strong a fan as I expected. <laughs> I'm being drawn in gradually by your uh, humour and uh, engagement, Ollie. Oh right, well you must be the first person. <laughs> um, so <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do. If I'm asked to describe myself, I will almost invariably say I'm a teacher. Uh, I've spent many, many years as a teacher. Whether it's sitting in front uh, of a boardroom uh, of sort of 15 board members or whether it's uh, you know, a room full of 14-year-olds, uh, sometimes it is obviously difficult to tell the difference. Really, what I'm doing is teaching, educating. And yes, my specialist area is uh, governance. So the, the understanding of how organizations or governance steer themselves and how the people inside them also steer themselves. Okay, so I want to um, talk about your uh, most recent article. So you've written a, a number of articles on, on governance and uh, talking obviously specifically about um, Guernsey in the current election, which is obviously why you're on the show. Um, you mention quite often the words bravery and courageousness. Um, tell me how those words link into good governance in your view. I think they link in from multiple facets. I think the first principal area they come in is leadership. If you're going to lead others, and if you're going to even lead yourself, because that's what you have to be able to do first, you need uh, the sense of being able to be courageous, to be able to stand up and set out your course so that others can follow. And that does require courageousness and it does require bravery. The other angle, I think, which is probably more political as opposed to leadership, is the ability to be able to think outside of what's known as Overton's window. And this is about being able to think uh, of ideas that are radical and unthinkable, not just those that are acceptable and popular. But the other thing about Overton's window from a political perspective, if you think about the idea of what should be happening in a boardroom in some ways is similar as to what should be happening in government. So if you have everybody essentially thinking along the same lines, everyone running a very mainstream, popular and acceptable policy, then actually you're just ending up with group think. And obviously that's a very dangerous thing in a boardroom. And what you're actually really looking for is diversity of opinion. I mean, diversity is something that obviously is hugely talked about in respect of governance and, and boardrooms and organisations. But it's equally important, as we know, within government. So um, actually, that raises a good point on the formation of um, political parties in Guernsey, because um, what you're potentially getting there is is actually, in fact, the opposite. You're getting um, a group of people who've come together because they have very similar views with the intention of all being elected. Um then do you, uh, I, I don't know, do you then have the potential of doing a disservice to the island by having an entire party voted in that way? I think it's a, a very interesting development within Guernsey's constitutional framework. I think at 
this th this particular election, I think what you'll see is um, most of the public almost ignoring parties and, and simply voting independently. And of course, parties once elected uh, don't have uh, any kind of, you know, whip or anything like that that can actually force them to um, vote along party lines. So political parties here in Guernsey, uh, as they currently stand, don't have any of the um, kind of authorities and um, discipline that you will see in the UK political parties. But in answer to your question, is it dangerous? Well, I, I, I've been quite vocally critical of obviously the decisions that have been made in the UK with regards to the current crisis. And of course, if you have political agendas uh, being um, thrown in front of the health agenda, which is what you've seen, then you end up with the mess that you've got. Of course, Guernsey has followed the different strategy and formed ex executive government and simply made decisions on the basis of the needs for health. Uh, and I think this is probably why we find ourselves where we are and the UK finds itself where it is. Yeah, it's interesting um, because where a lot of people would potentially criticise the setup of Guernsey, where you're electing 38 individuals, which means you have 38 individual opinions, which means no decisions ever get made and everything's too um, hard to decide on because no one's coming to terms with each other's view. Um, actually, what you're saying is maybe um, having the setup like that allows... Uh, for swift action, which may be contrary to what um, what many islanders think. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it is contrary. Um, and it's my view is coming from the basis of of what represents good governance. Well, what represents good governance is diverse views, uh, diverse experience, and that that diversity and the inclusion of that actually brings about better decision making. I want to go back to the Overton window a little bit because um, I, th I believe that you have challenged some candidates um, in hustings with the idea of, um, you know, the the obscene, the, the ridiculous, uh, and you've asked them for the most outrageous policy that they could come up with. What was what was the response to that question? Rather unenthralling, um, pretty depressing. <laughs> um, I think the, the the wildest idea I got, Ollie, was uh, we should be enforcing people to drive red cars in on Monday, blue cars in on Tuesday, and green cars in on Wednesday. <laughs> Whoa, God, that's outrageous! Exactly, as as a way of somehow um, reducing impact on the environment. But it raises it raises the the, the very issue that I'm talking about. Is, is that you? if you're not bringing radical and unthinkable ideas, you're never going to be able to make significant steps. I don't actually think that you've got people who are limited on ideas. You know, I mentioned um, in my press uh, letter about, you know, the, the tunnel between, you know, Guernsey and Jersey. You know, most people would consider that a pretty radical or unthinkable idea and, and completely pie in the sky. Um, but as as an idea, it sits in that spectrum of radical and unthinkable on Overton's window. And these are the sorts of things we need. You've been meeting uh, many of the candidates. Um, part of your, uh, I, I quote, your journey of assessing candidates, endeavouring to find the humanity beneath their 
wafer-thin exterior of their manifestos. Um, what have you thought and made of, um, you know, the, the whole issue of having 118 manifestos to lead through and the difficulty that's proven to voters? Can... Can that ever be a good thing? Can that, have you got ideas on how that could be resolved for the next island-wide election? This is this is our our first foray, isn't it, into island-wide voting? I think we really have to learn from some of the organisational challenges that have come about as a consequence of there being one hundred and eighteen, nineteen candidates. I think organisationally we've struggled to be coherent in you know where do i find the hustings how do i meet with a candidate where do i find their manifesto if i'm not online do i really have to wait until the 25th of september to actually read a manifesto and then have you know less than two weeks uh, to try and form a vote if i'm doing postal these logistics really have to be resolved because otherwise it isn't going to succeed. So I think in the future, logistics and organization is probably one of the keys to this. Uh, and if we're going to be moving and sustaining our island-wide voting system, I think we move, need to move to a much more uh, electronic way of delivering this. Uh, and those that aren't need to be identified early on so they can be involved in the process. But I think ideas sometimes, when they are brought in, they do need time to mature. So I think if we're if we're too quick to judge this, and we're too t- too quick to kind of turn around and run back to our parochial elections, I think we risk not moving forwards. So whilst it's so easy to retreat back to what's comfortable, I really do believe that we need to look at this journey, assess the weaknesses, look at the strengths and keep moving forwards with it. Because I do believe that island-wide voting as a route forwards for Guernsey being able to really move towards better, to become a global leader in areas that we haven't even yet thought of. Those are the things that we need to be able to do. And I don't think that stepping backwards to parochial voting is going to do that. Well, Per and Kerry, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for joining me. And uh, perhaps we'll hear from you in future episodes. You're very kind, Ollie. Uh, Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Best of luck to everybody voting. Thanks for listening. Our latest set of audio manifestos are available for you to listen to. You can find it in the same place you found this episode of the Guernsey Daily. Remember, the full list of candidates is available on election2020.gg. To get in touch with the show, find us on Twitter at Guernsey Daily or email theguernseydaily at gmail.com. We're also proud to be partnered with Guernsey Community Radio, where you can also hear the podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Bye for now.